We're continuing our sermon series this week um, as we look at the vision of the church, gather, grow, giving, and going, as we uh, have a vision to know Christ and to make him known. And uh, one of the things that uh, Andy Stanley teaches and a number of other pastors teach is that um, vision leaks. Um, Over time, vision leaks. We lose sight and forget why we're here, why we're doing this thing called church. And uh, one of the things that that he says is that you can tell if vision is leaking by what people complain about. So I don't know if you've heard any complaints at church recently, but what are people bothered by? What kind of things do we get fixated on? That could reveal that sometimes we as a church are losing sight of what the main thing uh, is about. So we are looking at Luke 15 today uh, to to remind ourselves about the go. Uh, Pastor Aaron has preached on the importance of gathering, the importance of growing, the importance of giving uh, as we all steward the various graces that God has given to us individually and us as a church to serve the body. But today we're remembering, uh, coming back to the vision of the church, that, that part about go. We're going to look at what go is about. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and we'll be covering the first 10 verses. Uh, this is the famous chapter that has the story of the prodigal son Uh, as well, which we're not going to cover that, but I'd encourage you, if you haven't read that recently, to to go back and uh, study that passage as well. So Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man uh, receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost, he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 sinners who have no need of repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me pray a minute for us as we uh, study this passage together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this teaching from Jesus and that you would help us to understand your heart, your heart, the shepherd's heart, the heart that would leave the 99 in search of the one. And I pray that you would give us as a congregation just an incredible insight into what that means for our lives together as Grace Church here in Bergen County. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me call your attention a minute to verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, where it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And if you've been in church for any length of time, then I'm, I'm sure that you know that that catchphrase, sinners and tax collectors, refers to the people in that society who were considered to be derelict. Uh, these, are, these are folks who are really on the margins of society. Uh, they're, they're a despised class. They're kind of the, the lowest of the low in Jesus' time. And yet the scripture says that all these sinners and tax collectors uh, were drawn to Jesus. Jesus was like a magnet for uh, these type of people. 
And um, I wonder, you know, have you ever met somebody in your life that you felt that same kind of attraction to? It could have been a man or a woman. I don't, I don't mean that you felt like physically attracted to them, but there was just something about that person that drew you in. And you felt good around them. You found comfortable around them. You wanted to be with them. And I can certainly think of uh, somebody in my life, um, Pastor John, and uh, John's a great friend of mine, and I just love being with him. He's the type of person that I, I feel great when I'm with him. I love talking with him. I feel comfortable with him. I feel like Pastor John uh, brings out the best in me, and I, I laugh easily with him, and, and we have a great time. And, uh, and so he's special in that way, and I'm sure, you know, maybe for some of you it's Pastor Aaron, or for some of you it's a friend or a loved one that you have that they just, in their presence, there's something that, that makes you feel special. And I imagine that Jesus was that kind of person, except even more. And there was something about Jesus, a, a kind of magneticism. And, and people were just attracted to Jesus, and they wanted to be with him, and they wanted to touch him, they wanted to be around him. And the interesting thing as you read the Gospels is that it, it was all kinds of people were attracted to Jesus. The liberals were attracted to Jesus, the conservatives, the rich, the poor, the religious, the sinners, uh, even prostitutes wanted to be with Jesus and be around Jesus. Just everybody gravitated towards him. And have you ever thought, you know, what was it specifically about Jesus that people found so compelling and so attractive what was it about Jesus that, that drew everybody in? He just was you know, getting swarmed by, by people all the time. And Jesus was a religious leader. He was a holy person. But I believe, and I think Scripture teaches, that with Jesus, he was revealing a radically different picture of God than what people had experienced and what they knew about. Perhaps they saw a vengeful God, a wrathful God. But, but Jesus was revealing uh, a God who was compassionate, a God who was a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus was revealing to people a God that, that wanted to draw them in and wanted to heal what was broken, wanted to restore what was lost. And so I think when people felt and saw that God as they encountered Jesus, they, they just they, they wanted more of that. And so here you have this holy, righteous person that just everybody uh, is coming to be around him. But there are certain people who, when they see this happening, they are very, very irritated and frustrated by this. And that, uh, that brings us to the Pharisees. So to take a look at verse 2. So you have the sinners and tax collectors are swarming Jesus. But then it says in verse 2, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees and the scribes are the religious class. They're, they're really the, the high-ranking people in this day and time. The NIV translation uses that word grumble. They're, they're grumbling. Here it says they're muttering. So, so they see Jesus surrounded by all these derelicts and these dirty people, these unclean people, these sinners, and, and they, they're very offended by that. They don't like that. They, they find that to be very distasteful. And so what is, you know, why, and this is a big theme in Luke, that anytime Jesus is, is inviting tax collectors or spending time with sinners, repeatedly throughout Luke, the Pharisees and the scribes become irritated. They start to become resentful. And so why is that? Well, the reason is that Jesus is violating uh, very strict social codes. Uh, there, there is a very clearly defined kind of social religious structure that existed in that time. I have a slide here to give you some picture of it. But you had a very, very small uh, no, noble class at the top. And then at the, at the top, you had the, the, the Pharisees, you had the uh, priestly class. And these are really the elites 
They're the cultural and religious elites at that, at that time. Uh, then underneath them, you had a, a smaller um, class of the uh, middle class. You know, in the United States, we have a big middle class, but the middle class uh, of first century Palestine was relatively small. But though, you know, those are good people, they're uh, business owners and so forth. But then underneath the, the middle class, you had the largest class, which was the, the poor. So most people of Jesus' time, most of his engagement would be with those poor people. So these are, these are farmers, these are peasants, these are maybe artisans and laborers. But even though they're poor, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily, you know, um, that, that they're, they're held in any kind of derision at that time. Because underneath the poor, you had the lowest of the low category. And into that category, you have the sinners, you have the tax collectors, you have the prostitutes. And this was a class of people that was despised. So if you're a peasant even, or if you are a Pharisee in that point of time, you do not want to spend time with this class of, of sinners uh, the murderers, the tax collectors, so forth. You don't want to touch them. You don't want to go into their homes, right? These are people who, for a variety of reasons, that good society considers them to be completely on the outs. So you don't even want to go into their home. You don't even want to touch them. And yet we see with Jesus's lifestyle and the way he conducts himself as he's doing ministry that he is flipping things upside down because what is Jesus? You know, we don't often think of Jesus as a Pharisee, um, but in a way, he kind of was, you know, he's in that group. He, he's a rabbi. He's, you know, he's a religious person. And yet here you have this uh, a, a rabbi, a, a religious teacher, who is spending time with that lowest class. And so this is highly, highly offensive to the Pharisees. And we shouldn't be too hard on the Pharisees. It's so easy. You know, we can just rip on the Pharisees. It's so obvious. Like, the Pharisees are uh, hypocritical. But, this, you know, withhold judgment a minute and just try to understand, you know, why might it be the case that the Pharisees are so frustrated when they see Jesus violating uh, all these, th this social order of the time? The Pharisees have made every effort to live righteously before God. The Pharisees are the ultimate rule followers. They follow the rules. They have rules on top of rules. You know, the Pharisees are trying very hard to please God and to live a righteous life. You've got to give them a little bit of credit, at least for trying, right? And so when they see Jesus hanging out with the sinners, with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, when they see Jesus acting like that lowest class of people is just as welcome in the eyes of God you can understand why they would be incredibly, incredibly frustrated and confused. Why is it that Jesus acts like these folks are just as important as the Pharisees? Why is he acting like the, the drunks and the tax collectors that those folks can have just as much standing in God's family and be welcomed into his circle as the Pharisees? This blowing the minds of first century Pharisees. And so they are extremely, extremely frustrated. But I want us to think today, as we go back and kind of imagine this scene playing out, that perhaps Jesus sees something in this crowd that the religious crowd doesn't see. Maybe it's the case that the Pharisees and the scribes and the elites have people pegged and they have judgments and they're making assumptions about this lower class. And Jesus sees people fundamentally on a different level. 
The religious class is looking at the superficial, is judging people by the exterior, but Jesus sees people that need God. He sees people that are looking for wholeness. He sees people that know that they have a heavenly father that that wants to invite them in and wants to bring healing into their lives. He wants them to change the way they judge people and the way they view people and to come at it completely differently. And so Jesus tells a couple stories to try and help expand their minds, to, to change their perspective about the way that they're judging people. Jesus tells two stories. He tells the story of the lost sheep and he tells the story of the lost coin. And these stories have basically the exact same point. And Jesus uses the the story of a shepherd who has uh, 99 sheep, and he he leaves the 99 in search of the one. Now, uh, Jesus is is telling this story in such a way that the answer to the question that he asks is extremely obvious. There were a lot of shepherds of this time, so people would have known what he was talking about. And if you read it in the Greek, when Jesus tells the story of the shepherd who goes, he leaves the 99 and goes off in search of the one, it's one big, long question. So in, in our text, it's kind of multiple questions. But in Jesus's, you know, the way he would have spoken in Greek, it's all one long, uh, it, he spoke in Aramaic. My apologies, just translated into Greek. But anyway, in the Greek text, it's, it's one long question. And the question is this. If you're a shepherd and you have 100 sheep and one of your sheep wanders off, this is the question, would you not leave the 99 to go off in search of the one? Okay, that's the question. And the answer is completely obvious. It's obvious. Everybody in Jesus' audience would have agreed wholeheartedly, without question, that if you're a shepherd and you have 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, you leave the 99 to go off in search of the one. No question. So then he continues. And by the way, if you found that lost sheep, you would hoist it up on your shoulders, you'd carry it back home, and you would tell everybody that you, were, that you found your lost sheep and you would have them over for a massive celebration and everybody would come and celebrate with you that you found your lost sheep. Wouldn't you? So you ask them the question. And, and for Jesus and for all of them, the answer is obvious, yes. That is exactly what we do, no question. Friends, it would be like if you had five kids and one of your kids wanders off, you're going to just, oh, I have four others, so I'll just leave the one. <laughs> no, of course not. It's obvious. It's obvious. And uh, the same thing with a, with a woman who has 10 silver coins. Listen, if you have 10 silver coins, you have like 1,000 bucks. That's all you have to your name. And you lose one of those coins, do the math. That's 100 bucks. Right? If $1,000 is all you have and you lose 100 bucks, oh yeah, I lost 100 bucks. Okay, no big deal. No, right? But you're going to search your house high and low to find that lost $100. Again, it's an obvious question, and everybody in Jesus' audience would have said, yeah, wholeheartedly, we, we get it. We would leave the 99 in search of the one, and then Jesus, you know, he, 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 he gives them this incredible way of understanding exactly what he's talking about. Take a look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is trying to tell them a story to get them to change the way they look at people, change their perspective. The Pharisees and the scribes, they see sinners and tax collectors, they see a problem. They see an inconvenience. They see a lot of gray area. We don't like gray gray area. We like things black and white. We like things clear. 
They see a problem element in society. And when a Pharisee sees a sinner or sees a tax collector, a hundred judgments go through their mind and a hundred assumptions about that person. And the Pharisee judges them and thinks that person does not have their act together. God does not love them, include them. He doesn't have any space or room for them. I certainly don't have any space for room in them in my circle either. But Jesus is trying to help them see that God does not see people that way. He doesn't see a problem. He doesn't see a reject. He doesn't see a loser. He doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see a tax collector. He sees people who are lost, people who are broken, people who are hurting, and people who desperately, desperately need to know that they have a loving Heavenly Father who wants to be in relationship with His people made in His image. Can I get an amen? I know it's the 9 o'clock crowd, uh, not as boisterous as the 11 o'clock. If you didn't know that, you should come to the 11 o'clock sometimes. <laughs> we see a problem. The Pharisees see a problem. Jesus sees a lost sheep, a lost coin. He sees somebody that his heart goes out to that person, and he wants to see them restored. He wants to see them made whole. God is on mission, and he wants us to see it in the same way. Again, I said it's easy to be hard on the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are in Scripture for a reason, because Pharisees represent religious people. And the reason we can rip on them, we can call them hypocrites, but they're there because I think the Pharisees are a, an insight into how religious people can tend to be. And so I have a question for us at Grace Church here today, and I realize that this is a, this is a hard question for us to wrestle with, and that question is, how do we see people how do we see people folks who come in folks you encounter folks that maybe from a world's perspective have a problem what is our view towards them what is our heart towards them do we judge them do we make assumptions about them or do we like God and like Jesus see just people not problems but just people people who need God people who are looking for God people who need to be restored into God's family. Maybe we see a derelict, we see a drunk, maybe we see a liberal or a flunky, or maybe a loser even. I hope we never use that word. But friends, the bad news, if those kind of categories even come into our mind, then I have a bad feeling that we're jumping way too quickly to making assumptions about people and putting people in boxes. And those boxes prevent us from showing the same kind of love and, and, and compassion to people that Jesus had. Our tendency, and I don't think we do this on purpose, but our tendency is to put behavior before grace. And we say, get your life in line, get your act together, get cleaned up, then you can be a part of my family, then you can be a part of my church, then I can talk and sit with you about God. And yet Jesus, we saw, reached out to that person and attracted those people into his life. Jesus would say today, those are the kind of people that I want in my house. Those are the kind of people that I came for. He is trying to help us see that God is on a mission. He leaves the 99 off in search of the one. And his desire is for his community of faith, his family, to have that same mindset, that same heart, 
to leave the 99 and be willing to reach out in compassion and love and hope to the ones who need it, to the ones who are broken, to the ones who are longing for God's redemption in their life. We see a problem and God just sees people, just people, people that need love and people that need compassion. You know, I said in the beginning of the message that Jesus was attractive, right? He attracted everybody. And it's so interesting because he was holy, and yet even in his right, right, Jesus never sinned. He's perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And yet his holiness was not off-putting to people. I think a lot of times we mistakenly think that the reason the world is not attracted to the church the way it's attracted to Jesus, well, the church is holy. People don't want anything to do with holiness, right? But I don't think that's really what holiness is because if we look at the holiness of Jesus, what do we see about the holiness of Jesus? We see a person who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. He never sinned. And yet that holiness brought him close into close proximity and physical contact with all kinds of people. If Jesus were here today, he'd be at casinos. He'd be at AA meetings. He'd be at rehab centers. People would say, oh, look at who he's hanging out with. That was the kind of holiness that Jesus exemplified. It was not a PG, cleaned up kind of holiness, but it was R-rated holiness. And I think our churches in the United States maybe are a little bit too PG. And we got to recover this R-rated Jesus, a Jesus who spent time and attracted all kinds of people, made space for them in his life to have relationships with them. The church is supposed to be a hospital for sick people. Friends, tell me, what would happen if a hospital only admitted healthy people? The hospital would be out of business in no time. The church is a place for sick people to be able to come and get well. Listen, I'm not saying that we as a church, we accept sinners, and so therefore you can be a part of the church and you can live however you live and that it doesn't require any change in your life. I'm not saying that. Because I believe that God cares about you way more than you do and that God wants what's best for you. Does God accept the sinner? He does. But he doesn't leave you the same. right? Jesus is not like, you come to me, accept the grace and the salvation I want to offer you, but then just keep, keep going on living the way your life, you're, you know, living the life the way you were doing. That's not what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants wholeness of life for you. He wants to reconcile with, with God. He wants to set your life on fire. He wants to give you meaning and purpose. Jesus accepts a sinner, but he doesn't leave you in that condition. The whole purpose is to renew you, to, to help you have a wholeness, fullness of humanity which so many of us, were just scratching the surface of, of what that means. But he wants more for you than what you want for yourself. He invites us in, in our imperfection. And he is trying to change our perspective so that we realize that when a lost person, when a quote-unquote sinner comes in, puts their faith in Christ, he said, look, look, look at verse 10, what does it say? In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When a sinner repents, it's like a touchdown in heaven, and the, the, the stands are going wild. Right? When there's a baptism, and somebody puts their faith in Christ for the first time, heaven goes crazier than a bunch of 17-year-olds at a Taylor Swift concert. All right? It is just 
just an explosion of joy in heaven to see lives changed. The churches should not just be about transfer growth. I'm, we, we are thankful that God is bringing all kinds of people to grace from all different kinds of churches. But we need to have a heart that says when a person, a lost person is found, when a sinner repents, when a broken person experiences the gospel of grace in their life and their life is transformed, it is party time. And God is jumping out of his seat in excitement and saying, this is what I came into the world for. And he wants to see the church living that out in the way that we extend hospitality to the people whom society has written off. Now, I wonder this morning that as I've been speaking, maybe you feel like you were written off. And maybe you've experienced judgment in church. Or maybe you've been made to feel like they didn't have a place for you. Maybe your life is falling apart and you lost your job or a spouse left you or a kid is walking away from the faith and you are in a place of brokenness and you were made to feel at church like church said, unless you get your act together, you don't have a place here. And if you ever felt like that, then we as a church want to apologize to you. We want to apologize and say, that was not Jesus. That was us. That was our self-righteousness. That was our own insecurity that led us to treat people like that. Because when I read the gospel, I read about a Savior who accepts broken people. I read about a Savior who says, you don't have to get rid of all the sin in your life before you can come to me. I read about a Savior who said, in your sinful condition, I gave my life for you. One of the most important remember, uh, verses we have to remember, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for, love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners... Jesus didn't say, you know, get all the sin out of your life, get everything perfect, get your life together, then I'll die for you. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, when our lives were falling apart, when we couldn't get our act together, when we were making all kinds of mistakes, when we were burning bridges, when we were in toxic relationships, Christ died for you in that condition to reconcile you to God. Friends, if you come into church this morning and you feel like you're far away from God or you feel like you're not good enough for God, that God's grace and love couldn't possibly extend to you, friends, you are in the right place. You are in the house of God. And this is a church that welcomes sinners. This is a place where we say, you know what, being unqualified, if you're in my, the class within the Beatitudes, what did I say? Being unqualified is the, the first qualification for accepting grace. It's the beginning. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It is that acknowledgement, acknowledging you fall short, acknowledging that you don't, act to, that you don't have your act together, that you're losing control. That makes you qualified. Jesus says, come, Come, accept the kingdom that I've prepared for you. I came for you. This parable is showing us a God who's on a mission. He's not waiting for us to come to him. He's running to you. He's finding you. Friends, sometimes that lost person is not out there, right? As we're thinking about our go, maybe our mind naturally goes to missions, but what did that parable say about the, the, the widow with the coin? Where was the coin lost? It was lost in her own house. And it could be that, that there are people in our own families, in, in our own church, that are lost, that are hurting, and that need to be reminded of God's love and his forgiveness and of the gospel of grace. And so for our go 
is not just about going on mission. It's not just about going, quote unquote, out there, but it's about looking around. It's about changing the way that we see people. It's about recognizing that God's heart is for, for every person and he desires for them to come and to know him. And if you are that person today, then you have an opportunity right now to put your faith in Jesus and to accept him as your Savior and Lord, to lay down your life. If you realize you've been trying to go it alone and it's not working, I have good news for you. It will never work. We are broken. But God says, come, put your faith and trust in me. I've given my life for you. Stop trying to control things. Let me be Lord of your life. Let me lead you, and I'll lead you into life, lead you into fullness. And when I pray at the end of my message, I'm going I'm to give you a chance to accept that call for yourself. Friends, the church today is unfortunately not nearly as attractive as Jesus was. But I believe that if we're intentional, that we could help the church grow to be attractive, to have the same kind of holiness that Jesus exemplified, a kind of holiness that didn't put people off, but a kind of holiness that, that draws people in. It starts with not putting people in boxes, with not judging people. But another important thing that, that we need to do in the church, and I'm especially speaking to myself and to leaders that are in the church, is that we have to learn what it means to lead out of brokenness. Sometimes we as leaders in the church want to project strength, right? We're up front, so we want to communicate to everybody else, yeah, we have it figured out, we're walking the walk, look at me. But the fact is that when we who are up front or when you're leading, when you project and try to communicate that you have everything figured out and that your life is perfect, we're setting unrealistic expectations and we're pretending. And that creates a barrier. So something I'm passionate about and something that I see in Scripture as well, that we as leaders in the church, we need to lead with brokenness. People need to know that we struggle too. I struggle. I'm not going to tell you everybody now how I struggle, but come talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll share with you, and some of you know, I struggle too. Right? We can't communicate to people that this is a, play, a perfect place where everybody has their lives figured out. It's just not the case. We all need grace. We talk about the 91 leaving the 99 for the one, but the fact is we're all the one in some way. But it's in our brokenness and in our, even in our sin, Scripture reveals that, that God's grace is able to cover over that and His glory is revealed. God's glory is not revealed in our strength. It's revealed in our weakness. And so we, we in the church, especially leaders, we need to communicate that we too are broken. And if, um, to, just to exemplify this, flip over in your Bibles to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, because we, we see Paul uh, demonstrating this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Again, how do we become more attractive to the world? We lead out of brokenness. Let people know how we struggle, how we've experienced grace, how God has rescued us out of shame, out of guilt. What does Paul say? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't lead out of strength. He wasn't impressive. But he led out of weakness. 
He said, when I was with you, I, I knew one thing, Christ crucified, that was it. I didn't compel you to believe because I was so powerful, you looked at me and were so impressed. No, I came to you in weakness. So friends, when we are weak, we are accessible. When we make ourselves vulnerable, and when I'm, I'm willing to let my guard down enough to, to show you some of the things I struggle with, then that, you know what? People will feel comfortable. They can open up. And they can reveal where they struggle and where they need grace as well. Timothy, uh, Paul said to Timothy that this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, our vision at here at Grace is to know Christ and make him known. Do you know Jesus? That's where it all starts. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you accepted your imperfections and even your sin, but know that God can forgive you? He can repair those parts of you that are broken. He can bring healing into your life. What does it require? It requires faith and repentance, putting your trust in Jesus personally for yourself, knowing that through his death and resurrection on the cross, he reconciles you to God, that you can have communion with God. You can know God as your father. It will change your life. And then he calls you into repentance. Remember what I said? He accepts you as a sinner, but he does not leave you in your sin. He calls you to follow him in repentance, to change your life, but he'll empower you to do that. And he'll walk with you. He wants what is best for you more than you do. He will reorient your life around his kingdom and his purposes. He will bring you eternal salvation. And you can know that when you die, you will go to be with him for eternity. Friends, that offer is before you right now. And I'm going to pray and invite you to accept Christ for yourself. And for us as a church, as we think about the go, right? Gather, grow, give, and go. May we be a congregation that is motivated not just to see people coming in, but to see lives changed, to see baptisms. May we be a congregation that's comfortable being a little uncomfortable because the kind of people that we're coming in maybe surprises us, makes us, it's a little gray, there's a little gray area, makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And yet we're making it known through our love and our hospitality that there is a place here for broken, struggling people so that we can see grace church grow even more and more with people whose lives are being transformed by the gospel of grace let us pray dear heavenly father i i pray now encourage you uh, any any of you who are listening to to just say these words um with me in your own heart lord we put our faith and trust in you this morning god we've been we've been hurt by the church in different ways we've been made to feel like we were less than that that our lives were a mess or perhaps we've experienced judgment but we know lord that you you welcome the poor in spirit. You spent time with the sinners and tax collectors. You had a vision for bringing wholeness into their lives as they came to know you as their Savior, and you reconciled them with God. Lord, we want to be reconciled with God this morning, and so we too put our faith and our trust in you. We repent of our sins. We hand our lives over to you. We pray for your grace and for your love to fill our lives. Would this day be the start of a new journey and a new path with you? Lord, I pray for this church. Would you encourage us? Would you keep us on mission? Would you help us to remember that you are a shepherd who leaves the 99 in search of the one? I pray that Grace Church also would be a church that is willing to leave the 99 
to go off in search of the one. We pray this in Jesus' name.